Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, February 10th. Coming up is the 9 to 5 workday. Is it officially dead? Plus, we'll talk with Grammy Award-winning Dan Hill. He is the newest inductee into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we'll cover the latest COVID headlines with vaccine researcher and our good friend, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. All of that coming up next on the podcast. The company Salesforce, they are busy today working out what work will look like in the future. Now, the company Salesforce, they have essentially declared, how about this, the 9 to 5 workday is done. It's over. It's dead. And for more on this, here's Ian Lee, our friend from the Sprott School of Business, joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Ian, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Uh, the company Salesforce says, quote, it no longer makes sense to expect employees to work an eight-hour shift. What, what is Salesforce? What are they exactly proposing to its employees here, Ian? Well, they're doing what a lot of companies are, are, are looking at doing. I'm talking Facebook. I'm talking here in Ottawa. There's uh, uh, the government of Canada uh, in the downtown. And that's going to, uh, I call it the hybrid model. And the hybrid model means that after the pandemic's over, some people will continue to go to work five days a week, but by no means all. Um, Salesforce is saying that about um, a third of their people um, will, uh, well, two-thirds, let's hear their figure, two-thirds of their uh, workforce will only come to work one to three days a week in the future. Well, that means that if two-thirds are only coming in irregularly, that means only one-third is coming to work regularly. This is going to change the downtown. If this, if we can extrapolate from Salesforce, which is in San Francisco, a big city, um, if we can extrapolate from to cities like Toronto and other large cities, it, this will change the downtown. It won't turn it into a ghost town, but it's going to mean, look, if you take a third to a half of the people who used to travel into the downtown every day to go to work, Monday to Friday, and you take a third to a half of them out so they're not going in every day, that's going to change everything. It's going to change the demand for restaurants. It's going to change the demand for parking. It's going to change the ridership on the transit systems. And it's going to change the rents because supply and demand, both commercial rents and residential rents in the downtown. So we're only at the – Jeff, the point is, is that we're only at the very, very beginning of this process. It's going to work itself out over the next – not three months – over the next literally four to five years as people realize and understand what trends are evolving, what percentages, how many are going to be working virtually, how many are going to come to work. They said one to three days a week, um, 65% will be coming in one to three days a week. Well, that's a big range all by itself. Sure. One day a week is very different from coming in three days a week or two days a week. So, yeah, And, of course, there's many different employers, but I think we can step back and look at the big picture and say the downtown in big cities is going to change. It's going to, there's going to, it's going to be less congested, less people going there. I'm not suggesting collapse of downtown Toronto or San Francisco. I'm just saying, I don't think the, the days of when, you know, the rents were just off the charts in San Francisco or New York or Toronto, those days may be coming to an end where the rents become more, shall we say, moderated and moderate. That is to say, not so extreme. And, and I think it is going to happen because companies and employers, all employers, are driven by the economics. That is to say, I'm sure they're salivating these 
accountants and chief executive uh, financial officers saying, boy, if we can get rid of one third of our footprint, our real estate footprint, and I'm paying, you know, whatever, $100, $200 a square foot, look at the millions of dollars they can save. I know I've heard from friends in the government that they are looking at this very carefully behind closed doors. In downtown Ottawa, the government of Canada is looking at how much real estate can they give up? How many people can be working from home? And it's going to change the downtown of Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a fundamental change, a fundamental shift here, not only of work, but to your point, the spinoff uh, fact, uh, or factor being uh, what downtowns will look like. And I think a lot of people are... Ian waiting for the vaccine and thinking once it arrives, it's going to be a return to normal. We're going to see that same vibrancy, if you will, that we saw in downtown Toronto pre-pandemic. But uh, this suggests that uh, perhaps that's not so. I, I agree. And again, I'm not suggesting that, you know, people are going to abandon downtown Toronto or, or, or you know, these big cities. Not at all. But I think they're going to uh, lose some of their attractiveness. And and I think you can even make some uh, almost generational um, uh, generalizations. That is to say, young people, single people, I think the downtown will continue to be very, very attractive. You know, you're young, you're footloose, you're 22, you're 25, you're 28, you, you know, you're not, you don't have any children. And uh, the downtown and is still the place to be. All your friends are there. That's where the entertainment is, you know, whether it's sports stadium or music uh, venues and so on. But what we're already seeing, and we're seeing this in city after city, is is that when you get a little bit older and you want to have a family or you do have a family, living in the downtown in a high-rise building on the 22nd floor with two children is not so much fun. It's not mm-hmm. so attractive. And they're moving out to the burbs where you're seeing huge increases. So this, is being, this isn't just an opinion. This is being driven by hard data. The, the prices have just skyrocketed in the burbs of Toronto, Ottawa. I mean, there's been price increases in, since COVID of 25, 35, 45% in the edges of the city. People trying to get out where they can get a house of their own and with a backyard and it's not so congested. And so you're going to see a re, I think, a reorganization, a restructuring where some people leave the downtown, some businesses leave the downtown, less congestion in the downtown, but there'll still be a very distinct, observable downtown. But as a consequence, it's going to change, as I said, the economics of parking lots, the economics of high-rise buildings, the rent, the commercial rents, uh, the condo market in the downtown. And it'll change the um, the demand on mass transit on the uh, LRT systems and the subway system. Yeah, the the spinoffs really are mind boggling here. I want to ask you as well, uh, Ian, about the the very nature of work, and are we going to see a bit of a paradigm sh- paradigm shift there? I mean, when Salesforce says that it no longer makes sense to expect employees to work an eight hour shift. Are they fundamentally saying that, listen, we know that you're uh, wired, that, uh, you know, your cell phone has got company email, and we're all on Microsoft Teams now, and that this 9 to 5 thing doesn't really make sense anymore, and really what we need to look at is that, I don't know, as an employee, you have a certain target, and it's up to you how long and how you achieve that? I think we are moving in that direction, so it's going to be much more your value contribution. How, what is your what is your productivity, in a broad sense of the word? And uh, I mean that that was there already for the higher end of the of the hierarchy. You know, the VPs and that they weren't paid because they were sitting at their desk for a certain number of minutes a day. They were paid. You know, it's like a, a coach or a star athlete in the NFL or NHL. You are paid because of your productivity, because you scored a lot of goals or you scored a lot of touchdowns, and uh, where you 
you parked your body every day was up to you. They didn't care less. Well, that that ethos, that that culture, I think, is migrating down into the mid part of the hierarchy, and and so the middle level. Um, are, are going to be much more evaluated, not on are you sitting at your desk for eight hours a day punching a clock, but uh, what value are you producing? And, of course, the technologies are getting more and more sophisticated. I'm talking the online technologies of computing. They can see what you're doing because everyone's plugged into Teams, as you said. We're all using Microsoft Office or some variation there, too. You know, we're sharing our work files with each other. People can see what you're doing or not doing. And uh, so, again, your geography is less and less important. You can be sitting in your in the suburbs in your bedroom with your pajamas on while you're working. Um, it, you don't need to be downtown. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's going to change not only the downtown economics we just discussed, but it's going to change the way we evaluate people in terms of what they produce or contribute as part of the uh, bargain for being employed by that organization. Okay, i got less than a minute here, Ian, but do you believe that we are seeing a substantive change here, that Salesforce, this isn't just a, a one-off, or that there's just a couple of companies that are considering this, that uh, in the next, I don't know, couple of years, say, uh, we are going to see a real shift when it comes to uh, how we look at work and how work is valued? I, I do believe so. I mean, we're seeing it with the accounting, the big accounting firms. We're seeing it with the IT. Shopify, a, a huge uh, you know e-commerce company in downtown Ottawa, has already announced they're vacating the downtown, and they're not going to have everybody coming to work anymore. Uh, Government of Canada is working in that in certain key departments. Uh, banks are working in that. So it's not just the tech sector. This is going on in large companies everywhere, uh, partly because they realize they can restructure and do their work differently, partly because there's a cost driver at work, which is downsizing the footprint of all that real estate downtown Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, New York City, and so forth. So it's partly economics and it's partly cultural, uh, the shift, but there are very profound changes, uh, permanent changes coming in the way we structure the workforce. All right, good stuff. Ian, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Stay well. There's Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Sometimes when we turn the honesty is too much And I have to close my eyes And hide I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you Till the fear in me subsides Okay, I'll admit it, that song still gets me Still gets me after all these years. Everybody knows that song. Sometimes when we touch, and of course the man behind it, the great Dan Hill, who has just been inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dan Hill here to Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. It's such a pleasure for me to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, listen, the pleasure is all ours. And first of all, congratulations. What does this mean to you to be inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame? Well, uh, first, I'm, I'm humbled, honored, and privileged. Uh, then I'll just say this. Uh, to my parents' everlasting horror, I barely made it through grade 12, did not go to university. And my university was studying, listening to, watching uh, artists like Bruce Coburn, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen. Not only did I watch all of them perform, I bought all their records and learned how to play their songs. And without me having been taught by these uh, unbelievable Canadian artists, there's no way in the world that I would have had even 
the slightest success as a singer-songwriter. So basically, uh, they were my college professors. Mm. And to be alongside them now, many, if not all of those uh, great singer-songwriters in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, it, it must really, truly be mind-blowing. It, it is. As I said, uh, yeah, um, well, I have to admit that sometimes I live in my own little creative bubble, right? So um, that's a good thing and a bad thing. So, uh, yeah, I was absolutely astonished, uh, astonished, and again, deeply, deeply moved when I discovered this news uh, maybe two and a half weeks ago. All right, well, take us back to 1977 for a second, if you could, Dan, and sometimes when we touch. When you wrote that song, did you feel, did you know that you had something really special there? Well, yes. I was 19 when I wrote those lyrics. Uh, you know, I was not making a living yet. As a musician, a lot of singers had already recorded my song. Uh, when I wrote that song, over two days, after I finished my work at the Civil Service for a dollar eighty-nine an hour, when I finished that song over two days, I thought it was so great that when I went in to work at the, at, you know, again as a you know, civil service employee, I actually taped that lyric onto the wall. I said, "This is the best thing I've ever written. This is definitely a groundbreaking song." And all these years later, Dan, what do you think uh, that song? Why is it so timeless? Why does it resonate even today? Well, a couple of reasons. Again, the man I wrote this song with, who wrote the music, Barry Mann, not only is he one of the best songwriters of all time, the most played record of all time, he co-wrote You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Without a question, you know, I didn't write the melody, but the melody to sometimes when I touch, particularly the chorus, is without doubt one of the best melodies ever written for any pop song. So that's the reason why, you know, people like Dolly Parton say sometimes when we touch is the best song of all time. A lot of it is because the best songwriter of all time wrote the best melody of all time to my lyric. Um, the next thing is that the lyric is highly unusual. Words like, I'm just another writer, crap with my tooth, hesitant, prize fighter. You know, definitely highly unique and authentic and at the same time relatable. No, I didn't have no idea that it was going to be a, a classic, but now I can absolutely understand why. Yeah, and I'm glad you used the word authentic, Dan, because I think as well, I mean, the song is written beautifully. You're right, it's a, it's unusual, but it's your performance on that song as well. It is just so heartfelt, so so real, so authentic. Well, thank you for, you know, for picking that off, Jeff. Yeah, I sang that, that I, I, I nailed that vocal when I was 22, right? Um, uh, yeah, I've been blessed with it, <laughs> what can I tell you? I was born with a great voice, and I, I, I sang every single day for hours since I was four. So one other thing about that song, about Barry Mann, the, the guy who wrote the music, so brilliant that before we wrote, I'd already had two albums out, which I wrote that were huge. Barry Mann analyzed my vocal range and over these two albums and then deliberately wrote the melodies sometimes when we touch so that it would bring, would bring out the best in my voice. I mean, talk about a crazy, brilliant composer. Uh, mm-hmm. Awesome, just awesome. And I feel like when an artist, Dan, has a song, like sometimes when we touch, is there kind of like, a, I don't know, pre-1977 and then post-1977? I mean, how much did your life change over that one song? Well, um, when you have a, a smash in 1977, as in my case, uh, that song, very interesting, that record, Sometimes When We Touch, A, you know, went to number one in Canada and became the biggest Canadian record at the time of all time. Two months later, bam, it conquers America, right? Uh, 
Yeah, that, that's two months later, bam, it conquers Europe. Two months later, bam, it conquers Asia. Two months later, Africa. So it was very unusual today when The Weeknd releases a single. It goes out right around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of interesting to follow that record as it conquered systematically every continent. Well, because of that record, I never had to work again. Um, because of that record, every every artist, every producer, every song where I wanted to write with me and record my song. So not only did it, it, it makes me able to retire at 23, for me to then write hits for Britney Spears, Celine Dion, George Benson, Jeffrey Osborne, Tina Turner. Well, the only reason that happened, because sometimes I'm going to be was my gateway into an industry that is extremely hard to crack. Well, listen, you did anything but retire, as you just uh, mentioned there, writing songs for so many others. As a matter of fact, between 1986 and 1989, there was a Dan Hill pen song on the Billboard adult contemporary chart every week, every week for four years straight. I mean, Dan, that's incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Um, I think that kind of, well, I learned this a lot from my parents, um, I guess the importance of of a work ethic, and also everybody knows that no matter how rich you are, if you retire, you're going to get depressed. So um, I've I've had to, to, for my own mental health, continue to have a sense of purpose. Uh, I've always written uh, very prolifically. Uh, I didn't even know at the time that I had such dominance. It was actually a combination of my hit recordings and the combination of artists like George Benson and Jeffrey Osborne having huge, huge smashes with the song I co-wrote in your eyes. So I didn't even know at the time that I was, I was really the most dominant force on AC American radio. Yeah, Dan, for those that are listening and they're aspiring songwriters, what is the key, do you think, to being a great songwriter? Can you point at one thing, or is it just uh, is it hard to kind of encapsulate? Well, no, I, I would say I'll, 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 give you, uh, I'll give you three things. Number one, authenticity. Do not try. Do not imitate anybody. Right. Find your own voice. Uh, you know you have to be unique. Second of all, all the rules about how a male should behave. Basically, do not show your vulnerability. Do not reveal yourself. Do not become passionate. All those things have to be thrown right out of the window when you're writing songs. You have to. You have to own up to your vulnerability, to your emotions and your passions. If you don't do that as a songwriter, you will never have a hit. Okay, the next thing, I'll make it really quick, is highly, highly advantageous if you can play an instrument. I've been lucky I play guitar and piano. That definitely makes the whole songwriting process vastly, vastly uh, better. Listen, I think those are great rules for not only songwriting, but for life, Dan. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. I think we all know that, though, you weren't allowed to be vulnerable, and it was thought of as being a wimp in 77. Now, of course, you know, according to the so-called experts, it's highly important to be vulnerable. You know, and, and to not um, to not kind of put a kind of a veneer around that vulnerability that is actually very hazardous to your mental health. All right, the great Dan Hill with us on being inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Dan, again, congratulations and uh, on the honor, and really my honor to be able to sit down and talk with you for a few minutes uh, here today. Thank you so much for joining us, and again, congratulations. Thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you for your time. All right, stay well. There's uh, Dan Hill.
Okay, let's run down today's COVID headlines. Here's vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel joins us now on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Good afternoon there, Jeff. Okay, we want to start with uh, yesterday's uh, COVID case count in Canada, the lowest since late October. Obviously good news, but we obviously shouldn't uh, let our guard down. I know Dr. Tam and other health officials are uh, warning Canadians against that today. Absolutely, and with good reason, because although the total case counts are falling across Canada, variants are on the rise. And why is that concerning? because they're so much more contagious. Whereas 100 people before would be infected with the original variant, now 150 to 170 people would become infected. So that's really concerning. And what are we up to? 148 cases so far, most of which are the UK or B117 variant. That's actually outnumbering the South African variant, the B1351 variant by more than 10 times. So we need to be testing more to see the impact that these variants are going to have here in Canada. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously we want to be concerned. We are concerned about the uh, variants, but and maybe you can clear the air for us on this, uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, because I've heard comparisons made to influenza and the fact it has many variants as well. And really the flu shot, the yearly flu shot, is just the three most popular strains from the uh, year before. So these uh, variants are different strains of uh, COVID. Uh, were they to be expected? Are they similar to what we see with influenza? Not at all. What we know about the novel coronavirus, is that it causes disease, which is multi-system disease. It's not just the respiratory tract. It involves virtually every body system. And that's what's so concerning. Up to 10% of those people who have COVID-19, and I'm talking about young ones, can wind up having long-haul symptoms. And those symptoms are not just respiratory tract symptoms. They can involve heart symptoms, kidney symptoms, liver symptoms, brain symptoms. So that's the problem with it. It is not just another influenza. And the variants are of, of special concern because while we're, you know, if we're to loosen up on all of the lockdowns, on the quarantines, the problem is these variants can get out a lot more as children are going back to school. We know that children are less likely to transmit the disease, and significantly so, but they're still transmitting the disease. So the question is, is now the time to be loosening up on restrictions? And I personally do not think so. I think we have to go into serious lockdowns and double down just to make sure that these variants don't do what they've done in other countries, which is run rampant. All right, let's move on to your specialty, vaccines. And we're hearing that Health Canada will and has changed the uh, Pfizer uh, labeling. It will now indicate six doses instead of uh, five uh, on each and every uh, vial. Is that concerning at all, or should it be, particularly in light of the supply problems, Dr. Gorfinkel, we've had with the Pfizer vaccine? I mean, are we guaranteed six doses in every vial? I thought just some of them had this, uh, quote-unquote, extra dose. Well, this is it. What, what companies naturally do is put a little bit of extra in just to make sure that when we're drawing up the vaccine, they account for a little bit of loss. So what this means is we have to be very, very vigilant in drawing it up. Every single little drop counts as, the, as it fills the syringe. It's tricky to do, actually. It's hard to get right. 
because as you're tapping the little syringe, you have to make sure all the little gas bubbles are out and no vaccine escapes whatsoever. That's not easy to do, but we can probably squeeze it out given the situation that we're facing. All right, and that situation, of course, is a vaccine supply shortage, as we well know. Also making news, AstraZeneca, apparently they're in their final stages of approval here in Canada. Can you give us some more details on the AstraZeneca vaccine? So AstraZeneca is a two-dose vaccine, and this is not a messenger RNA vaccine. It's actually DNA, and it's attached to a harmless cold virus, which is completely inactivated. So it teaches the body to make the spike protein the very same way the messenger RNA would, but in a different way. Its safety is excellent. There are no major safety concerns. The question is around how effective it is. So we were spoiled by the Pfizer and Moderna shots. You know, heck, they were 94, 95%. That was really exciting. This one is a little more confusing because two doses gave 84% reduction in disease and one dose, based on far fewer numbers, was 90%. So exactly what we're going to do is not certain. And I'll share with you, that was with the original strain. And as you may have heard in the news, the South African strain and the UK strain, the efficacy may be significantly less. So that's a big problem with this. So Health is Canada, this a- to its credit, sorry? Sorry, I was just going to ask, is that AstraZeneca vaccine, if it does get its approval, if it gets approval by Health Canada, is it then a game changer for us here in this country, do you think? It could certainly become that. You know, any vaccine is probably better than no vaccine. But if the variants were to be a big part of it, then that may not necessarily be true. South Africa made the decision not to give that to its healthcare workers because they're worried that it could encourage more variants to develop. That's a scientific explanation, but basically if the efficacy is really low of the vaccine, it encourages the you know, variants to come out, and that's a big potential problem. But right now, we have no vaccine. And what our major strain is, is the original strain. And it is very effective against the original strain. Just finally, Dr. Gorfinkel, wanted to ask you about our friends in Newfoundland. They've installed one of those circuit breakers uh, because uh, they've had a spike in COVID cases. I think the number is uh, 30. So it's a really harsh, tight lockdown for a short period of time there. However, the reopening plans here in Ontario, as I'm sure you've seen uh, this week, we heard that there might be an emergency break applied, but we don't really have any true metric. Do we need a metric, do you think? Uh, Should regions, should areas uh, know how much is too much when it comes to COVID cases and when we might have to go back into some sort of lockdown or use this emergency break? There's two aspects to that. The first is you look at the total case count, right? So it's encouraging. The case number seems to be going down. The problem is the variant count is going up, and that's the cry for the need for a circuit breaker. To the extent that the variants are going up is to the extent that we're going to be in deep doo-doo because we don't have good efficacy necessarily against the variants. So we need to be testing. We need to ramp up testing for the variants to better understand how widespread they are and the rate at which they are spreading. All right, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel with us this afternoon. Dr. Gorfinkel, pleasure as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Many thanks, Jeff. Always a pleasure.
You know what? I have not heard that song in years. That, of course, just one of many great ones from the Tragically Hip. But the 100th Meridian has become the subject of a very interesting lawsuit between the band and beer. And for more on this, joining us now is Catherine Lovericks, lawyer and trademark expert. She joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Catherine, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Okay, what exactly is brewing between, pardon the pun, the Hip and Mill Street Brewery? Uh, so um, the the long and the short is um, Mill Street Brewery, or, or the owner of Mill Street Brewery in 2014, filed for the trademark um, uh, 100th Meridian with beer. They filed in, in word and design form. The mark registered in 2015. Uh, As it turns out, back in 2014 and 2016, um, uh, they promoted in social media uh, in a way that uh, the Tragically Hip thinks got a little too close for comfort to um, the Tragically Hip 100th Meridian. And uh, the Tragically Hip uh, are now suing um, Trillium, which is the the company that owns um, the Marks. Okay. Well, let me ask you uh, this, because when I saw this headline yesterday, the first thing that occurred to me is, does anybody own the 100th Meridian, or is it just a geographical location? Well, I think that is exactly um, one of the big questions that will be answered. So one of the basis, uh, or one of the claims that the Tragically Hip is trying to pursue is to try to get um, the registrations that Mill Street uh, obtained, which are, are a shield from a whole bunch of claims. Uh, canceled or expunged on the basis that they're descriptive. 100th Meridian um, is, as the tragically hit state, where the Great Plains begin. And um, Mill Street itself, I think, uh, had promoted this particular beer um, as sourcing barley and other ingredients from Manitoba, which is where the 100th Meridian is. Okay, but again, that's just a geographical fact, right, and something that uh, cannot be uh, denied. So is there a basis of claim here, and is a trademark lawsuit, is it like any lawsuit here? I mean, the HIP is the one that's brought claims, so they're the ones that have got to prove damage. The Mill Street, they don't necessarily have to prove their innocence. Uh, exactly, Jeff. So this is a this is actually quite a complicated claim. And um, while as a, a hip fan, I, I may you know make an association in my mind when I hear Hundredth Meridian, um, I think that they're going to have an uphill battle uh, in terms of actually succeeding. So their basic claim, because Mill Street has a registration, as I said, that they they went through the usual channels. They they did it right from a trademark perspective. They filed their application. They got their registration. They're, they can use the mark with beer as a result. Uh, and the HIP's basic claim is that it's not uh, it's not only that they want to expunge the registration, but it's this collateral advertising that has resulted in Mill Street trading on the HIP's goodwill, um, and they have a bunch of other claims in there. But basically, that when consumers see the Mill Street beer, they're going to believe that the HIP is co-branded in some way or involved in some way, and will purchase the beer. So uh, Mill Street gets gets an uplift. But from a legal perspective, um, the claim is actually, I think really going to face an uphill battle and and not be easy to um to pursue in part because most of the the social media um that was referred to seemed to be from 2014 and 2016 which is quite some time ago now yeah is there a statute of limitations when it comes to copyright law and trademarks 
There, there is, and um, it's an interesting question as to whether or not the statute of limitations may be triggered here. Um, uh, Mill Street, or the, the owner of the mark, um, has not defended yet, and so we'll see whether or not that's one of the, the bases that they defend. And their registration provides them with a pretty good shield. Um, you know, when you own a trademark registration, you go through that exercise. The registration itself gives you the right to use the mark um, with the associated goods and services, in this case, beer. And it's a shield from claims of passing off and, and a whole bunch of other um, types of claims um, unless and until the registration is expunged. So really the HIP is going after, um, at least on my read of the claim, the HIP is going after uh, collateral advertising dating back some time. And I'm, it's not clear as well from the claim as to why they're bringing this now, what, what the tipping point was um, that caused their concern to actually take action at this point. They said that they, um, in news, they've said that the, uh, they tried to negotiate coexistence and were unable to to reach an agreement. Uh, and maybe it's just that they sort of hit a point where they realized that no agreement would be reached. But this was their final step, kind of the last straw, their last resort. Sure. Uh, just as a, a, a matter, uh, give us your take as a trademark expert in a lawyer here. How difficult are these trademark and copyright uh, lawsuits to prove? I mean, how successful generally are they? Well, in this context, it's quite difficult. So, as I said, Mill Street went through the usual channels. They got their registration. It's not like they just adopted the mark and and um, uh, don't have a registration. They, they presumably cleared the mark. They presumably got their registration and, and some five years ago. And because the registration is five years old, it also means that it's harder for it to challenge. So, interestingly, if the HIP had um, brought this I think last November, um, it, it would have been in a period of time where the registration could have been challenged based on prior rights, but that's not easy to do, which is actually why the descriptiveness point that you raised is the basis for expunging the registrations. And that kind of cuts both ways, right? Because if on one hand you're saying uh, this is descriptive and nobody can register it, on the other hand, um, you know, what does that, does that mean that the HIP gets exclusive rights to it? It's, it's nuanced, and this is a mm-hmm. tough claim. 